CIUT 89.5 FM is a small Toronto community radio station, but its airwaves have a wide reach. From Barrie to Buffalo, from Kitchener to Coburg, and every town in between, we connect listeners across Southern Ontario. Real people, real voices, always unique. Fall fundraising kicks off on Monday, November 15th. Help us reach our $100,000 goal. Your generous support keeps community radio vital. For more information, visit www.ciut.fm. Early donations are always appreciated. Right here, right now, every day. CIUT 89.5, the sound of your city. The views and opinions expressed on the following program are those of the producers and or the persons appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of CIUT-FM. Well, welcome all of you out there in listener land to another episode of of the Radical Reverend here on CIUT 89.5 FM. Uh, We're delighted in this series to host uh, some phenomenal activists from around the world who've accomplished uh, amazing, amazing legal policy changes and changes in the lives of of all of us. Uh, And today's no exception. Um, Today, we're going to start off uh, with uh, Gide Macaulay. He's a reverend. uh, He is a priest with the Anglican Church in England. He lives in London uh, in the UK. He's also the founder and CEO of the House of Rainbow. He's a human rights and HIV activist, positive activist, and uh, and Jide, we're delighted to have you on the show. So welcome. Thank you so much for having me on this program. I'm truly delighted. And you know, activism seems to run in my blood. Um, you know, one of my uh, great uncles was um, uh, a, a, a national uh, hero in Nigeria. He fought. Um, to to get the British colonials out of Nigeria, his name is uh, his name was Herbert Macaulay. Uh, there are monuments and streets named after him, um, you know. And I think also I have a link with the Anglican Church. You know, uh, one of my my great foreparents, you know, Samuel Ajayi Crowder, um, you know, was also an activist. He was the first uh, Black African bishop um, in the Anglican movement, so in the African Church movement. Yes, uh, Jide, I forgot to mention that, of course, you are Nigerian and a lot of your work has to do with Africa. But let's let's talk about you. You've talked about your ancestors a little bit. Well, uh, you know, what was your upbringing like and what led you to even consider being ordained in, in the Anglican Church? I mean, I was born in London uh, in 1965 and I was raised in Nigeria. My parents were students uh, in the United Kingdom when they were giving birth to their children as well. So when they moved to Nigeria, I was probably about three years old. Uh, my upbringing, like many people, I was raised in a Christian home uh, that was fairly conservative um, then and, and now. And, um, you know, but I grew up in church. You know, my parents were part of a growing African independent church movement in Nigeria. My father later, um, my father studied engineering and then later became uh, a theologian. He became a church planter in Nigeria. He he was part of those people pioneering new ministries. Um, my father's um, latest uh, mission is uh, a theological college uh, in Nigeria, or rather a theological university in Nigeria that is training um, people for ministry. So I grew up in this family at about age 13. I was fully aware of my Christian upbringing. I gave my life to Jesus Christ. And I was baptized in that same um, year as well. And I've always wanted to be a minister 
in the church, but many African parents want their children to be lawyers, doctors, and engineers. I'm sure that many people will recognize those trends. I've always wanted to be a minister. But of course, you know, life courses take me on a different journey where um, I studied law. You know, I worked with a Crown Prosecution Service in the United Kingdom for about 12 years. I went on to work in private practice with, a price, with PricewaterhouseCoopers. Then I started my own business as well in education and training. But then I finally gave all of that up to go back to train for ministry. So I'm going to interrupt um, you there because that's astounding. It's not often that you hear about somebody with a legal background who makes the move to ministry because, as we all know, that must have meant a big drop in salary. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it, it wasn't just a big drop in salary. It's also uh, around job satisfaction as well. Um, if you're in the legal field, particularly if you work in, crimi in, crimi in, in criminality, uh, you know that uh, it's not always easy mentally, but I've always had a passion for pastoral care or social work. So I felt that, you know, my call into ministry ties in with that, you know, supporting people, you know, um, providing pastoral care that is appropriate and sensitive has always been part of my goal. How I was able to do that, you know, as a Black African British gay person is a completely different journey in itself so um and i'm glad that i'm able to do that today and and you're right about the fact that you know um ordination to ministry uh, you know ordination to ministry is not about how much money you make it's about how much life you know you can support and how much life you can save so let's go back to the to being gay um <laughs> Um, when did you first know that you were? When did you did you come out to your parents? What was the coming out process for you like? And, um, uh, you and know, again, uh, <laughs> ministry, go for it. <laughs> go for it. I mean, uh, getting to know that I'm gay and coming out as gay are just two different things. I think I've always known that I was different, probably from around about age five. And with many people that I support today, I, I ask them to put their lives in decades and try to recognize a pattern because, you know, the English phrase lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, intersex, queer does not feature in Nigerian languages. So we couldn't say that we're gay. I couldn't say that I was gay when I was five years old. I just knew that I was different. And I think there were certain incidents that actually confirmed that, you know, when I was nine years old, I was physically abused by my grandmother, you know, when she punched me in the chest and said, stand like a boy no child of mine will be a sissy. And I think, oh, that's something different about me in that time. And of course, when I hit puberty around about 8, 13, 14, you know, I knew that I was same gender loving. I had an attraction for people of my own gender. And it was very confusing when you are raised in a Christian family, in a Christian background where I was already exposed to scriptures like Leviticus, you know, that says that if a man have sex with another man is an abomination. And I know today that those readings, you know, require a lot more intellect, intellectual interpretation. But getting to know myself and coming out to my family, you know, took a longer time because as an African child, I'm expected to, you know, be educated and then get married and start my own family. Um, I certainly did all of that, you know, I, I was well-educated, rather I'm well-educated. Uh, I got married and we, I, I have a son, 
with my ex-wife before I came out as gay. Uh, coming out was not easy uh, because of being Black African and being a Christian as well. So I, I faced a lot of um, prejudice, a lot of discrimination. Um, when I finally came out, it was not easy. I, I came out because I was suffering in, in deep depression, anxiety, and mental health as well. Uh, when I came out, I actually came out to my ex-wife. Um, and when I told her that I'm gay, uh, she was distraught because we were quite young when we started our relationship. I was 22, she was 20 years old. Um, we're very young. And by the time I came out, I was probably about 27 years old, 28 years old. So when I came out to her, she said, I can't compete with this. And of course, by the time the church communities found out that I was gay, I was immediately excommunicated uh, from the church. And um, my relationship with God took a dip. Um, my, but I didn't, I didn't kind of break away from God. I, I had a breakaway from church. And, and I, I was struggling at the time. I was trying to find the right church. Of course, when I decided to join another church community, I also went into the closet with my sexuality. So I was back again, living a double life. This is what I was doing before I came out as gay, but I'm back again. On one hand, I was a, a closeted homosexual and a closeted Christian. Uh, it was deeply uncomfortable. I have to try to remember what stories I tell my Christian friends and what stories I, I tell my gay friends. It, at one point it felt incompatible. But I mean, coming out to my family, uh, was very difficult. Um, my mother literally asked me if I was gay. And thank God, by the time she asked me, I couldn't deny it. So I told her that I'm gay. Um, it took longer before my father, you know, approached the subject matter. When he finally did, it was far more painful uh, for me to talk to my father about my sexuality. Because in the African context, you know, when you're father or your parents talk to you, you don't talk back. So my father said so many things that were very abusive. Um, um, my father called me a disgrace. He was very much concerned about his reputation in, in Nigeria uh, against my sexuality. It really took me to uh, dark places that uh, at some point on my journey of coming out, I had contemplated suicide and I have actually attempted suicide uh, at some point as well. So. But one thing I always thank God for um, is, is that my coming out as well has given me strength, you know, especially when I was able to reconcile my Christian faith and my sexuality. And I was able to do this um, when I found out about the Metropolitan Community Church, uh, which was an inclusive ministry that started in the U.S. by uh, Reverend Troy D. Perry. Um, I, I joined the church community in London and I could not believe, you know, when I was hearing the message of inclusion that God loves me just the way that I am. And I already had passion for ministry and I, I joined the ministry uh, pathway at um, the Metropolitan Community Church where I was able to learn more about liberation theology, queer theology, inclusive theology. And I tell you, Jerry, I could not wait you know, to go back to Nigeria to tell my family that God loves me just as much as God loved them too. And of course, by doing that, they, it got me into many troubles as well, because in Nigeria, where we started House of Rainbow in 2006, 
It was the same year that the Nigerian government introduced the anti-gay bill. So here I am, you know, trained by a ministry that focuses also on human rights because the MCC is known as a human rights church. So we're not just studying the Bible, we're living the Bible. We are doing the work of justice through scriptures. We are taking the message of salvation and redemption out, you know, to the dark places of the world, including into the lives of the LGBT people, you know, providing this light of God into these spaces. And here I am in Nigeria, where the government has introduced an anti-gay bill. Um, you know, if we fast forward to 2021, it's exactly the same that's happening in Ghana, in another West African country today. But back in 2006, it was the same year that I started House of Rainbow in Nigeria. And we struggled a lot because the bill was gathering momentum. Uh, House of Rainbow was gathering momentum. We realized that there's so much to do in a community. It was not just creating safe spaces for praise and worship. It's also responding to the violence against our communities, you know, the physical, the emotional, the spiritual violence. Uh, many of our community members and church members were fired from their job, evicted from their homes, dehumanizing society. Uh, the rate of jungle justice in Nigeria, if they know you're gay, they can literally burn you uh, alive, you know, in, in the town square. And for people to understand, Nigeria inherited the British colonial laws that actually punish homosexuality uh, with imprisonment. But in the northern part of Nigeria, that's a third of the countries in the northern states of Nigeria, in the northern part of Nigeria, uh, you know, have what is called the Sharia law. And under Sharia law, you could be stoned to death uh, if you're successfully prosecuted as a gay person, as a lesbian person. Um, and of course, unfortunately, in Nigeria, there is extreme religious fundamentalism. There is extreme religious conservative ideologies that is promoting conversion therapy and shock therapy against the gay community. And this is the backdrop that I have to battle with. I have to fight day in, day out in order to get the message of inclusion out there, but also my life was at risk. Um, in 2008, the media exposed my uh, ministry in Nigeria and um, my home was vandalized and, and thankfully I wasn't at home. I would have been killed, you know, in that raid on my home. Um, so there was a lot of violence. And I think that the reality is that, you know, whilst I trust God for the inclusive ministry, whilst I believe that G-A-Y means God adores you, God accepts you, God anoints you, I also believe that God is asking us to do the work of justice, just like Prophet Micah instructed. So what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness. And it is in this that I, I, I kind of immerse my ministry to continue to be this activist for, um, you know, for creating safe spaces. And of course, you know, the activism didn't end there. You know, we had to respond to a lot of social um, challenges in our communities around homelessness, um, you know, poverty, um, HIV is affecting the LGBT community, you know, like, like a terrible uh, plague or pandemic. And of course, the government of Nigeria and the around Africa do not respond, you know, to uh, sexual health needs of the LGBT community. 
it wasn't surprising because in 2008, there was a conference on, um, it was a sexuality um, conference in Africa uh, where there were two um, papers that were presented uh, you know, on homosexuality in Africa. And one was presented by an American, the second was presented by a Canadian. And, you know, this is this is no, no judgment against Americans and Canadians. And I think that these two um, presenters meant well, but they were talking about the impact of homophobia on the gay community in Africa, where we who are Africans were not able to speak at those conferences. And I remember staging a protest alongside with many other activists that we have our voice and we can speak on our own issues. And of course, that landed me into many more troubles because then I was um, I was ambushed by the Nigerian media. Um, you know, I, I made a lot of statements. I was pretty angry. And of course, that made a lot of headline news in Nigeria. Um, one of the early headlines, you know, around my activism you know, about um, creating safe spaces for people in church was actually head-on coalition with my own father. Um, there was an article in Wall Street Journal that was published in February of 2007. Um, there was a journalist visiting Nigeria at the time who interviewed both myself and my dad. Um, my dad was clearly in favor of the anti-gay bill. I was clearly against it because I think that, you know, in, in, in even in 2006 or 2007, there is no room for this level of abuse towards the marginalized communities. But my father felt that it was justifiable to send gay people to prison for 14 years with hand labor, plus shock therapy and conversion therapy to, break, to make them normal. And I completely object to all of that. So the, the, the Wall Street articles headline um, says anti-gay build device family. And I was described as Reverend Macaulay Jr. whilst my father was described as Reverend Macaulay Sr. Um, you know, it kind of sent waves into how we dealt with the matter. But I continue to find ways to reconcile with my own family, regardless of my own position on human sexuality and the church. Uh, of course, uh, here you are on the Radical Reverend Show, listeners, and you've just been listening uh, to Reverend Macaulay Jr., we just discovered, um, uh, who, uh, as an activist on, on this week's program, and we're so uh, honored to have you have you here. Um, thanks for, for taking us through. I mean, it's remarkable that you're alive. Uh, I mean, as you were speaking, I, I was thinking that you're here at all is, uh, is a miracle. Um, now, how long did you continue to battle on in Nigeria? When did you make the, the, the move, uh, because you're in London, and, and talk about the move to the Anglican Church as well. Thank okay. you so much. I, I think the process of my ordination uh, took many uh, pathways. Um, the first pathway to ordination was ordination with my father's ministry. Um, I trained under my father between 1996 and 1998. I think by now, people are going to be working out how old is Judy McCauley. Um, but my father ordained me into ministry in 98. And the reality is that it was actually on the backdrop of me coming out as gay, divorcing my ex-wife. I haven't actually got the time to resolve all of those conflicts in my own personal life. So I couldn't resume into the, into the office of a minister. So when I found out about the Metropolitan Community Church around about five years later, 
um, following my own uh, ordination by my father's ministry, um, I started to learn more about being gay and reconciling my faith. So I transferred my clergy credentials to the Metropolitan Community Church. So I became a reverend in the MCC Church. It was out of this experience that I took the ministry to Nigeria, you know, because I was settled in England, I was based in England, but I gave up everything in England to move back to Nigeria in order to foster this ministry. House of Rainbow and myself lasted just about two years in Nigeria before I was forced out of Nigeria. But I always try to make this clear. I already have a relationship with the Anglican Church going back to 1997, but I couldn't join the Anglican Church uh, as a minister because the time in 97, the position of the Anglican Church globally uh, with the gay community was not something that it was exciting or inviting. But by the time I returned to England at the end of 2008 and come 2009, um, I was having conversations with some of my mentors and, and clergy friends in the Anglican Church. And they actually said to me, Jide, we believe the Anglican Church is ready for your ministry of inclusion. And I was encouraged you know, to uh, train as a minister in the Anglican Church. And this is how it came about. So I went to have conversation with um, you know, one of the uh, bishops and, you know, they asked me to put in an application. I went through the process. I was selected for what is called the bishops uh, panel. And then I was um, approved for training in the Anglican Church in 2010, 2011. So um, I followed the process. In 2013, I was ordained deacon uh, into the Anglican Church, you know, serving a local parish, you know, uh, in London. But unfortunately, as you have a, you know, my ordination made headline, you know, all over the whole place, especially in Nigeria and around Africa, because here I am an openly gay man who is already established in this uh, inclusive ministry, has now joined the Anglican Church in England. It created, you know, anger within the Anglican Church in Nigeria and around Africa to the point that I believe I must have, you know, have an army of haters against me. Um, so my placement in the local ministry uh, was after about three months, you know, I ran into many other difficulties uh, that was hinged around homophobia, racism, xenophobia, and of course, my HIV status was stigmatized within those communities. I was literally forced out of ministry. I, I the, the, the stress was too much. Um, you know, I was being taken, um, you know, through many painful experiences. Um, I was facing many challenges by the diocese, and I decided that it is time for me to step aside, you know, to have a think of which direction to go. Um, but even though I stepped aside, um, in 2017, I returned back to ministry in the Anglican Church, um, and I was, I was clearly promised that I would be ordained into ministry in 2018. When it came to time for ordination to priesthood, uh, my priesthood was set aside. And again, in 2019, I mean, I didn't actually stop doing the work of an activist. Um, I'm always calling the church out. I'm always calling the Christian communities out when it comes to racism, homophobia, and any kind of abuse against humanity. 
Uh, but it seems that the church are also not relented, relenting in their abuse towards marginalized communities, whether I've been a black person or a gay person, I'm always getting the abuse. In 2018, I took part in the Gay Pride in London, more so that I was a speaker on the platform in Trafalgar Square. And, you know, I remember speaking to the audience and, you know, the, the best of the words and phrases I can share was that G-A-Y means God adores you. And words went back, you know, to the diocese that Jide is telling the gays that G-A-Y means God adores you. And they have come up by saying that it's against the canonical teaching of the Anglican church to tell gay people that G-A-Y means God adores you. But to be quite honest, that actually propelled me to actually do more uh, by sharing that phrase. And I didn't stop. And of course, in 2019, you know, I, mean, I, I, was, I presented a documentary on BBC primetime television uh, about the, um, the abuse that is taking place in the Anglican church uh, around same-sex marriage. In 2013, the, the British government has passed a law that allowed same-sex marriage uh, to be as equal as heterosexual marriage. In the same legislation, the Church of England, uh, you know, was able to was allowed to legislate discrimination against same-gender marriage in the church. I picked this up in a documentary and I presented it to the world. The Church of England were mad at me again in 2019. They postponed my ordination because they didn't know whether or not this was going to be uh, a serious matter for the church. But I was asking serious questions about why the church is allowed to legally discriminate and why the state allowed the church to discriminate when the state is giving gay people the right to marry, the church should be able to submit to, this, to, to, the, to that equality law by the state. But unfortunately, it was the other way around. So my ordination was set aside. To be quite honest, I wasn't mad um, that my ordination was set aside. I was actually more angry that fellow Christians and fellow theologians, you know, were able to use this as a form of abuse. Um, I didn't feel depressed about it, to be quite honest. I was trusting God that my ordination was delayed. It wasn't canceled. Um, so I was I was waiting and I'm waiting for God patiently. In September 2020, I was finally ordained into priesthood. And I remember one of my, my posts on social media is that this is a privilege and an honor to be ordained into, into priesthood. And now I'm finally able to occupy a position in the church as a priest where it is now possible for me to pro provide appropriate pastoral care for the LGBT people, for our friends and our families, and there is no going back. And so it didn't matter that it took six to seven years from being a deacon uh, to being a priest. I just know that God is working in our favor. Uh, talking to uh, Reverend uh, Macaulay here, uh, G. Day Macaulay, uh, from the UK, from London, about his phenomenal activism and his success. <laughs> and his success, uh, uh, you know, we have a we have an openly gay and married, legally married bishop here in Toronto. <laughs> so in the Anglican Church, so uh, 
I, I'm sure I, it, Kevin Robertson is his name and Kevin has been on the show before. So I'm sure Kevin, if you don't know him already, uh, would send his regards to you, Jide. Um, and I, I just wanna, you know, we've only got a few minutes left now and it's been an absolute yeah. honor to speak to you, but I, I want to hear, and, and just to kind of round it all out. So you're ordained now, you're, um, you are a priest after all of that. Um, and the ripple effects of this, of course, are enormous, um, as you've said yourself, especially in places like Nigeria. Um, what does your father say? Did your father have any reaction to your actual final ordination? Was there any rapprochement there, as we say in French? <laughs> well, unfortunately, I don't know what my father's reaction is. I mean, my father was there when I was ordained deacon, but of course he was clearly out of the picture when I was going through all the many challenges uh, that I was facing. I think my father would have wanted me to submit to every authority in the church, whether it was negative or positive. But to be quite honest, the only authority that I was ready to submit to is the authority of God. And I think it's important to challenge religious leaders when they're also going wrong. Um, I actually decided the relationship that I need to have with my father in 2014, when my father celebrated with the Nigerian government um, after seven six to seven years of the anti-gay bill becoming law in Nigeria, my father celebrated with the government. I felt it is impossible for me to have a relationship with him when there are millions of LGBT Nigerians and people around the world that will be affected by this ridiculous and outrageous law. Uh, but to be quite honest, I want people to know that I have forgiven my father and I have no grudge against him but it's very difficult for me to have a personal relationship with him when I know that his views on same-sex relationship is quite poor and you know, is, is, is demeaning and it lacks the integrity of a person of a statue who is, I believe, well-educated. And I still can't get my head around it. But you know, forgiveness is, is also about myself. So, hey, I just thank God nonetheless how far we've come. Uh, thank you so much. And uh, again, thank you for your work with House of Rainbow. Um, incredibly brave, uh, an honor to have you on the show uh, and uh, keep on. And absolutely, um, you know, gay means God adores you. So thank you for that. Amen. <laughs> thank you, GJ uh, Macaulay, uh, Reverend now finally ordained in the Anglican Church in the UK. And if you're traveling to London, drop in and pay him a visit. Uh, to all of those listening on The Radical Reverend Show, uh, stay tuned for our next interview. Thank you so much. The sound of your city. CIUT 89.5 Toronto. Welcome back to The Radical Reverend Show. Thank you out there in listener land. Uh, and of course, as you know, we are doing this series on the show about activists, just uh, I mean, it's just been an honor really here at the station to talk to all these phenomenal people. Um, and thank you out there in listener land for following along with it. Um, I'm really excited. Uh, you, you heard in the first half of the show from Reverend Jide uh, uh, McCauley, uh, but this half of the show, um, we're going to a very other, very different part of the world. And that is Houston, Texas. So we've, we've, we've flown from uh, London, UK to Houston, Texas. Uh, and, and, and really, as a Canadian, I, I'm feeling the weather um, in Houston, Texas. Maybe not much else, but we're going to talk about that. And uh, who I'm talking to is Diamond Styles. I met her on a panel, was so blown away, so knocked out by her and her life that I just have to share it with you. 
Um, first of all, she's executive director of Black Trans Women Incorporated. She is the host and producer of Marcia's Plate that streams everywhere. And as I just said, she's situated in Houston. So Diamond, welcome to the Radical Reverend Show. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> so let's start with you. Uh, you, you growing up, uh, how did Diamond grow up? Uh, tell us your story. So I grew up in Indianapolis, Indiana, and Boston, Massachusetts, and a little bit in Chicago, but my main base was um, Indianapolis. I grew up with a single teen mother who was amazing and affectionate and loving and instilled in me confidence in everything about me, my intelligence, my beauty. She just was a great mom. Um, yeah, so that was back in the 80s. My mother also got caught up in the crack epidemic. And so it led her down a road of addiction. Um, she still was the same sweet mother, but neglect started to happen. And, you know, life kind of just kind of took a different turn. And she got caught up in the crime bill that, that everybody is holding Biden accountable for now and um, went to tell, prison. Tell us about that, that crime bill, because I don't think, uh, you know, even folk south of the border probably aren't aware of it, but some Canadians and others that listen to this program probably aren't aware of what you're referring to. So tell us about that. Got you. So back in the 90s, in order for um, politicians to really galvanize the white vote, <laughs> they they had to figure out a way, particularly liberal um, white politicians, they had to figure out a way to really galvanize the vote. And one of those ways is to be extremely racist within um, when they're talking about crime and the carceral system. So they were always talking about being tough on crime and being tough on criminals. And this is when we hear, um, we heard about um, Hillary talking about the super predators during the 2016 election. Those things that that kind of language was called for, you know, criminal black people out here doing crimes and we're gonna be tough on them. And so, they created um, a bill that really just ramped up how many Black people were going to prison and how, you know, three strikes, you're out, just no kind of compassion when it came to sp specific situations of poverty, specific situations of addiction, totally different than what we are seeing the rhetoric and narrative about you know, the opioid crisis now. Now we want to help people. We want to do the things, the amazing things and put money and resources in it because this this, this opioid crisis is killing white people. <laughs> but when it was Black people predominantly in the um, being um, stereotyped and being... Um, demonized by the by the crack epidemic even though it was cocaine and big uh, and big celebrities and parties and stuff was going on with where cocaine wasn't deemed <laughs> as negative even though they were both the same drug just in different forms but anyway i digress my mother got caught up in that system and she went to prison and i went to um, a group home my brother, well, we actually went to my grandmother's initially, but I actually transitioned when I was 13. 
because I am a trans woman. And when I transitioned, my grandmother put me out and I was homeless. So my brother stayed with my um, grandmother, but my, my grandmother put me out and said, you can't be dressing like no girl in my house. <clears throat> well, she said more colorful words. Can we say those here? <laughs> Might stay on air on the side okay. of caution. <laughs> she said more colorful words. You can't be a boom in my house. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, put me out. I slept in a car um, in February, you know, the month, the whole month of February in an abandoned car. And, um, there was this, I was, the car was parked by, um, this store and the owner of the store saw me sleeping in the car and he called the police on me and they sent me to a guardian home, which is, you know, a safe place for people who, um, are homeless children. And so they put me in a facility, uh, um, uh, a children's facility, and I stayed there until I was 18. <clears throat> and so, yeah, it was uh, it was an amazing experience. And that was when I was able to um, just kind of continue to transition, continue, get on hormones. All these things happened while I was at that facility. Um, well, um, the process of getting there while I was at the facility. And yeah, it taught me so much and led me to be who I am today. And what happened to your mother? You, you wanna know the end of that story? <clears throat> My mother continued um, battling with her addiction. She actually passed away in December for a fentanyl overdose, oh, which so is funny. happening to every, a lot of people, not everybody, <laughs> but to a lot of people in the world. Um, and, you know, it, it, across class, we have celebrities that are dying of the fentanyl problem. We have, you know, just regular, regular people. And so my mother was one of the people who died of a fentanyl overdose in December. I'm so sorry. Lots of love and light around you. Um, let's talk about your high school experience, in particular, the high school experience that really uh, kind of changed your life, kind of changes our life too when we hear about it. So talk about that. So like I said, I transitioned when I was 13. It was the summer before my very first high school year. I said in junior high school, so I don't know if y'all are, y'all um, high school system or school system is set up the same way. Yeah. Same, same way. We just, we don't use, uh, you know, it's, it's grade numbers here more than anything else, but gotcha. So yeah. our numbers are one through 12 mm -hmm. and so here. <laughs> one through six is together, which is elementary. Um, um, a little later it changed to six through eight, um, our junior high. But when I was coming up, it was seven through eight was junior high. And then nine through 12 is high school. And so when I got out of junior high, my um i said you know if i'm going to the new school if i'm going to if i'm going to meet new people i might as well meet them as my authentic self and being that i wasn't in my mother's home i was in a group home i was like yo i'm just going to be myself and i'm going to start dressing in more feminine clothes i'm going to start you know identifying as a girl and that's what it's going to be because <laughs> there's nobody really to stop me and so um, that was a blessing in that. And so that's what I started to do when I went into my freshman year. I was started to wear more girly curls. I wouldn't say that I was just fully old, 
you know, girl, like dresses and da da da. But it was definitely tighter, definitely girl clothes, definitely makeup, nice hair <laughs> and nails. <laughs> so um, I, I, my strategy was I'm going to slowly build it up to where I'm fully in my what how I want to how I want to do. So by the time I got to my senior year, it was full. That was four years later. I'm in wigs, I'm in makeup, I'm in dresses, I'm in heels, I'm fabulous. <laughs> and so, of course, with the students in this four-year process, there were certain things that came up, bullying, you know, name-calling, even fighting, you know, just different things that come with any queer person that is openly queer navigating a, a space full of kids <laughs> and so there was this negative there, there was negative things that happened but early on by the time I got to my senior year everybody knew me it was not a shock anymore it was not a big deal you know what I'm saying I, I had I had got to the point where I was a senior almost graduated and everybody knew me it wasn't a big deal so my for some reason, I can't tell you to this day because we haven't really talked in, in, I wouldn't talk to her, but <laughs> but if we had talked, we haven't, I couldn't get any information on why exactly she did this. But for some reason, at the end of my senior year, my principal decided to bring me into her office to tell me that I could not come to the prom in a gown. Now... I was devastated. At this point, I had, remember I told you I had been to, um, been in a group home. At this point, I actually was about to age out of the group home because the system of foster care and group home here in America is horrible. <laughs> and so once you get to 18, if you ain't got no family, they put you out. <laughs> now, of course, they I got a job and I saved and I could prepare for getting an apartment, but I had aged out and I had my apartment by this time. I had graduated early from high school. And so my last semester, I actually didn't have any classes. I was just waiting to graduate in June. And so only thing that I had to do in that last semester of high school was, you know, go to the fun stuff, go to prom, drama club plays, all the stuff high school people are doing, but just the fun stuff, none of the class stuff, because I had already did everything. So when she tells me that, I'm like, oh my God, why? Well, first of all, she's telling me two days before the prom. Anybody who have went to prom knows that you plan this stuff way in advance. You put your deposit down on a dress. You get it fitted two days before. It's, you can't tell me that I can't come two days before. And so now, in my, now, now, if I'm going to be really honest, if she hadn't said you can't come, I actually would not have gone to the prom because I was dating uh, in the closet guy who was taking a cisgender woman to the prom. That would have broke my little high school heart. <laughs> and so I didn't want to go to the prom to see him dancing with his cishet woman <laughs> and breaking my heart while coming and talking to me late at night. And so I, I wouldn't have went. But because of my pride and she really trying to tell me, no, you can't go. I was like, no, I know this isn't fair. 
I know you can't do this. This isn't fair. You're talking about it is against the rules. And I've been trans I've been dressing like a girl since this whole four years, and you've never said anything to me. I know this is this has to be something has to be wrong with this. And so I cried and um, not in front of her. <laughs> she would never get that. <laughs> but when I walked out of the office, I was so frustrated that I cried. And um, my English teacher, my amazing English teacher, she um, asked me what was going on. I told her and she says, look, I don't want you to um, don't tell anybody that I told you this, but here, call these people. This is the ACLU, <laughs> American Civil Liberties Union. Um, and they said they can help you with your case. Just call them and see what they can do. So I called the ACLU of Indiana. Just uh, taking a break here to let the listeners know that if you've just tuned in, you are listening to the Radical Reverend Show and you're listening to uh, none other than Diamond Styles, and we're hearing uh, her remarkable story. So sorry to interrupt, Diamond, go for it. Then what happened? So I called them, I gave them a call and they told me you need to call every news station, every news station and see who can give you an interview tonight about what's going on with your school. So I called every news station and of course, Fox didn't want to take me. Of course, um, any kind of, you know, conservative leaning thing didn't want to uh, take me. The people who took me is of course, NBC. <laughs> and so, they took my, they came to my house and interviewed me and it was all over the news that night. And so I'm getting all the calls from my mom, <laughs> from my family, from my friends. Oh my God, we see you on the news. Why are they doing this to you? Some, some of them were, why are they doing this to you? Some of them were like, oh my God, why are you doing this to the school? <laughs> You shouldn't be dressed like a girl. <laughs> that, that's the rules. You can't do that. And there's so many different different ways people were taking it. And so the next day, that was on a Tuesday, promise on a Thursday. So that was Tuesday night. The next day, Wednesday, I went back to the school because I had um I had um um drama club practice because we had a play. It's the end, of, it's the end of the school year play. So I am walking through the hallway. And the principal sees me on the camera walking through the hallway. So she, this is after school. So nobody is um, in the school actually. Well, some people, but it's not full because it's after school. And she sees me in the hallway and she walks past me and she says, this grown woman, older woman, she says, you know, you're going to lose and embarrass yourself. And I said, I shrug my shoulders and I say, okay, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> and keep walking. So we get to Thursday morning. They expedited the case and called witnesses from the school, of course, the administration. And um, I was a witness on my side. And they really, really just sped up, sped it up because, you know, we're trying to, I'm trying to sue them so they can let me go to the prime in the gown. And so we went to court. During the court, they asked all the history of me fighting in school. Will it be a problem? Will it cause a disruption? Will it do this? Will it do that? And most of the people were lying, but there was the dean of students, the dean who, of like of disciplinary stuff, he did tell the truth. And I think that was the one who really pushed the judge 
um, over. The, he, they asked the dean, do, do, does he think that me coming to the prom in a gown would cause a problem at the prom? And he said, you know, actually, I don't think so. Diamond has been a part of the fabric of this school for four years. They are used to her. They are friends with her. They are, they are in community with her. I just don't think that, now, now this language I'm saying now was not as affirming, <laughs> but he was in, he was affirming in the idea that my, the student body loved me and will treat me like they have been treating me. And he didn't think it would be a problem. I had students who signed a petition, a 600 signature of students that said this would not be a problem. They don't understand why it's a problem. First, the first 20 people on the list were football players. <laughs> and all this happened players. in like two days, right? All this happened in two and days. And what year My was best this, friend. Diamond? What year was this? Again, just to remind you. This was this. in 1999. Okay, so continue on. Party and like it my was. My friends, huh? <laughs> I said party like it was, 1999. <laughs> my yeah. friends, my my um, cisgender homegirls, they took the when I told them what happened on Tuesday night, Wednesday morning, they walked around the school with a piece of paper for people to sign saying that, do you think that this would be a problem? And the first 20 people they had on the signature was sports people, basketball, football. The the guys were like, no, we we know Diamond. <laughs> we we know we we wouldn't expect anything else. We knew what was gonna happen. And so I had those signatures and I had that statement for the court, and the judge decided in my favor. Lad took about six hours. <laughs> Fantastic. But so this, what was the prom like after that? <laughs> it was amazing. First of, first of all, the prom was amazing. But what really, really, like, just really swelled my heart in joy was when I pulled up to the prom, parents of students of the school had picket signs, and it was in favor of me. It, I thought that maybe they would have been against me. I was kind of scared, but they had picket signs saying, hooray, yeah, leave our baby alone, leave our baby diamond, because I had been such a part of the fabric. They knew me, the parents knew me. And so they didn't understand why all of a sudden, last month of the senior year that this teacher, this principal was doing this. And so they were all standing outside, news reporters, the cameras, because now, remember, remember, only NBC had decided to um, <laughs> pick up the case. But once they seen how it just got such a rise, Fox and everybody was there with the cameras when I, when I pulled out of the limousine. And so it was amazing. It was amazing walking because it was at the convention center, like most proms are in our city at that time. And just walking down and walking up to the table to give my ticket to the people and see the principal standing there having to take my ticket. <laughs> having to take my ticket and let me into the prom and uh it was so amazing it was beautiful of course i saw my boyfriend with <laughs> the girl but other than that it was a win 
it was a win and opened up so many doors for me in the in the idea of activism because this wasn't a planned situation. I was an activist. I didn't know anything about this, but it did give me hope that if I just fight for it, I will be able to do whatever I can. And so from that point on in my life, I have been really, really steadfast in believing that one person can make a difference because that case has been used so many times in Indiana to protect queer people in being able to express themselves in their gender expression and dress how they want to dress in school. It happened in Gary, Indiana, and they were, they even used my case in Mississippi. And it was just, it's just amazing how it sets a precedent and I'm able to use it in, um, and they're, they're able to use it in that fashion. So, I, I, and you have led a life of activism ever since. And so I got to ask you, how did you end up in Houston, Texas? And what's going on now in your life in terms of uh -oh. activism? Well, I, I got married and, and in 2005 and my husband got a promotion in, um, in the, the oil industry. And so he moved us to Texas early on and, um, that's a whole deeper story, but I'm going to keep it surface level. <laughs> but we moved here and um, it was tumultuous in the beginning. And then, yeah, it was amazing. And I stayed here. I met the amazing, rest in peace, Monica Roberts. I I had so... so I, it just grew me to be a woman, not only just in my responsibility and career, but also in my ideas of what an activist is and what I can actually accomplish and where the battles actually are. You know, I thought moving to like New York City or LA would be like, oh, let me go and get in the trenches. But the trenches is actually in the South. That's where they don't have the protections. Tons of, um, there's tons of um, protections in the other more metropolitan cities but when you come down to the south that's where the battle is yeah and so and that's what we've been doing yeah and we're hearing uh, you know sadly we're hearing nothing but negative uh news in terms of human rights especially queer rights coming out of texas these days Fact. so you really are in the, you know like the trenches in the belly of the beast there um you know you're and you've got i mean you're an activist by nature so what's the current fight that you're in there struggle that you're in now um in terms of rights down there Current fight is reproductive justice, um, trans kids in sports and in public accommodations. Those are the current fights that we are fighting. Um, and I know people say reproductive justice, you're a trans woman, you can't have babies. Look, sweetie, I am an ally. I'm not centered in that conversation, but I am an ally because I know that if they go after the agency of a cisgender woman's body or a trans man's body, when it comes to having babies and having children, <clears throat> I know that they'll come after my body, which they do anyway. <laughs> so I have skin in the game and I know I can be of support. And so that is why I, I definitely support the fight um, for um, reproductive health care. And, you know, I'm trans. So of course the the sports thing, that is like a slippery slope. They are trying to find every way to be able to disenfranchise us, to make us second-class citizens. And, you know, I don't appreciate it, even though I'm grown and a, you know, not a sporty girl. <laughs> 
<laughs> but I I know that I have to be there to support our trans children and the parents that are being supportive of our trans children. I, I have to be in that fight. And we're so glad you are. Uh, Diamond Styles, it's amazing how fast uh, the half hour goes, but it's been a fabulous ride with you. Um, thank you so much for talking about that win. Um, uh, your story will just energize and activate uh, so many uh, that are engaged still in trying to get to their high school proms, among other things. Um, so thank you so much, uh, Diamond Styles, for being on the Radical Reverend Show. Take care. Thank you for having me. CIUT's mission is to create and broadcast remarkably diverse and powerfully relevant programming. We are intentionally different from other radio stations. We work hard every day to attract a growing audience of listeners and donors who passionately support the station so we can ensure CIUT's long-term growth and sustainability. CIUT's board of directors is responsible for representing our members' interests, for overseeing management, and for setting the station's long-term strategy. We're looking for new people to stand for election to our board. If you're a lawyer, if you work in human resources, if you have experience with fundraising or the not-for-profit sector, we're looking for you. If you have strong ideas about what makes CIUT great or ideas about how we might make CIUT even better, come to our AGM on December the 15th. To be eligible, just make a donation of at least $89.50 before the end of November the 21st, 2021. And then look for your invitation to the AGM. To learn more about the board's responsibilities and this opportunity, please contact the station.